This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I genuinely believe, I feel quite passionately about this. It's not just because of the hot toddies. Um, I genuinely believe that pretty much most of the world's problems come from the act of dehumanizing another person. And if all this book can do is in some small way offer a human connection to a place or a people that's more commonly associated with terror, then I'll be happy. What a pleasure to spend time with Yasmin Khan, whose mission statement seems so like our own at Roads and Kingdoms. That is, pay attention to what's on the plate in a way that might spark some change, bring people together, and add some more justice to our politics and our lives. There aren't many books that try to do all of that and do it as gorgeously as Zaytun does. Zaytun is Yasmin's new book about Palestinian cuisine. We met last year at the Roads and Kingdoms office in Brooklyn as Yasmin somehow hacked a pretty decent hot toddy from our office kitchen. Her book Zaytun is out this week in the United States, and we are a better country for it. This is Nathan Thornburg, and you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. Sounds of a hot toddy. I love a hot toddy. <laughs> uh, you, you just made two hot toddies out of an office kitchen. The bottle of Old Monk rum that Shivani brought us from Bombay uh, and whatever kinds of spices are lying around Roads and Kingdoms sad and dilapidated kitchen. This is no Savoir test kitchen. This is this is a corporate pantry in uh, a rundown building in Brooklyn. Um, but this is a delicious hot toddy. Thank you. Well, you know, I'm nothing if not resourceful. And, you know, I'm, I'm, my, my USB is cooking in conflict zones, so I can whip up anything. Um. <laughs> I, have to, I have to say that there was a quarter of a lemon in there that was, that is, I mean, it, it looked like it was almost going nuclear. So we'll see, we'll see what the after, after effect okay. of it will be. Good. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's record this podcast before the illness sets in. Tell me, please, uh, your name and uh, who you are and what you do. My name is Yasmin Khan, and I'm a writer and cook and campaigner and maker of incredible hot toddies. Office hot toddies. Um, I can tell by your accent you're from somewhere in the mid-Atlantic states, Maryland. Do you know what? In recent years, people keep asking me if I'm Australian, and I'm finding it really troubling because, no disrespect to our Australian brothers and sisters, but... Uh, there's there's a slight superiority complex I have that um, makes me not comfortable with that. But uh, yeah, no, I'm from London. From Born London. Born and bred. <laughs> and that's something that you say as opposed to I'm English, British. Mm. What's the... The post-Brexit world. Yeah. How do we define ourselves? That's interesting, actually. I, I always say British. I never say English. Is English has like a an ethnic connotation? Just kind of makes you think of racist people. <laughs> Hello, we've moved on from <laughs> Australia to <laughs> our special relationship. 
No, there's, there's a, there's a you, you'll find, you know, it, it's English. English nationalism is something um, that's really grown in the last kind of 30 years as a specific thing. At the same time that Scottish and Welsh nationalism has grown. And um, I think for a lot of people who are, say, like me, second generation immigrants, the, the kind of description of British seems to just encompass what we are more. Although it also makes you think of the empire. I don't know. It's None of it's straightforward. No, because all of the best stuff about Britain came from all of the worst stuff. Right. I did this interview with um, this wonderful food writer called Pat Willard last year. And it was all about kind of a book she'd written on saffron. And she said to me that nothing improves a country's food better than a long, bloody foreign occupation. So, yeah, there's, there's, something, about, uh, there's something about that that I think is kind of probably true, but I'm not sure it's something we want to advocate. Uh, I'm going to just go ahead and take that as a direct blindside insult at Canada. <laughs> Lovely people. Are we just going to diss people the whole podcast? <laughs> we are going to fuck the whole Commonwealth up here. Okay. Uh, Canada clearly <laughs> has not been nearly uh, vicious enough in their, um, I guess they're bad enough with the First Nations, uh, but overseas no conflicts um, have uh, have created something. I just finished uh, actually listening to a podcast that is way better than ours. Um <laughs> <laughs> just gonna advertise that right now. Uh, Finding Cleo from the CBC, which is about uh, missing and murdered Indigenous uh, women in particular, and particularly this the story of this one girl who was uh, sort of uh, adopted out in the Adopt Indian and Métis program. Fucking unbelievable! Unbelievable. We have uh, many friends from Canada, including one of our uh, first editors, Mitch Moxley, who's from Saskatchewan, near Regina, which is uh, part of where the Cree had come from, or were in their reserves. I've got a lot to talk about with Mitch. Mm. <laughs> You're been, holding him responsible. <laughs> I've been giving him such a pass because <laughs> Canada is just, you know, between Trudeau and everything else. It's just this light. Uh, and then I'm like learning about residential schools and I'm like, oh, shit. Um, not quite that simple. So who's left in the Commonwealth? Those <laughs> hobbits down in New Zealand. I know they've got some dirt. Uh, uh, yeah. But I mean, where is the where is the light anywhere in the world, Nathan? Uh, Twenty Obama, Obama Foundation grantees announced today. Oh, really? Uh, Pulitzer Prize Indeed? announcements. We're going to date this podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, massively so. Uh, where's the light? The light entirely resides in Kendrick Lamar. Um, he's the keeper of the light for all of us. Godspeed, Kendrick. Uh, he won a Pulitzer today. Um, it's an important question, though, I think. I, yeah. you know, I've been reading a lot this... Oh, I mean, just... When you're, when you're stuck in the constant news cycle, I think it's really easy to just see the world as doom and gloom, and obviously there is a lot of that, but I'm a bit of a hippie at heart, and I know that we've got to always have that, you know, looking towards the light in order to try and help us make sense of this crazy world. And if that means drinking hot toddies... <laughs> On a on a Monday afternoon, in order to do a podcast, then so be it. The light is in this mug, <laughs> and I'm gonna, or it's at the bottom of the mug, and we gotta <laughs> we gotta get there quickly. Um, so, I wanted to talk to you about. I mean, there's a lot of things that you do and that you do uh, incredibly well. We were very happy and fortunate to work with you on a series where both you and I got to fly to Asia and 
eat our faces off in cities that were new to us uh, or that we were returning to with a lot of love. Um, you were fantastic in that. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, you are an author. You've done dinners with us here and in San Francisco uh, around Persian cuisine, um, which is part of our fundraising series. Uh, the thing I want to talk to you about, though, is your writing, and particularly your traveling for your writing, because um, as a follow-up to your incredible book about Persian cooking and cuisine, you... The Saffron Tales. The Saffron Tales. Link in the show notes. Um, you have now decided as your follow-up, this is your second book, um, which is called Zaytun, and is based where? It's based on my travels through Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza, celebrating the Palestinian kitchen. How did this idea come about? So your mother's background is Persian, your father's background is Pakistani. Um, you don't have a connection necessarily to Palestine, and yet you uh, came there thinking, I need to write a book about their cuisine. How? Why? Yeah. Um, well, it does seem to be, like, it is kind of starting to look like if there's conflict and kebabs, I'm just going to like fly over there and talk to people about it. But um, actually, I've, I've kind of been involved in the Israel-Palestine story for quite a long time. Um, in, about 10 years ago, I was working for a human rights charity in London, and my brief was conflict in the Middle East and human rights in the Middle East. I was very busy. There were no human rights in the Middle East. And uh, one of one of my areas was Israel-Palestine. So that was the first time I went over about 10 years ago. It was just after Operation Kastlet, um, which was the first of the now three major assaults on Gaza that we've seen. I already traveled to the region a few times. And when I was looking for an idea for my second book, you know, my I'm very passionate about showing people alternatives to the kind of contemporary or the mainstream narrative that's depicted of the Middle East and also of just trying to humanize stories of, of, of the people there. I think, I mean, the last 15 years has seen the whole region explode in just horror, really. Um, but beneath those horror stories are just stories of people and stories of human connection. And because having spent so many years, you know, working as a human rights campaigner, I, I and, and being involved in storytelling, I, I, I'm, I'm quite clear that actually if we, if we want to change the narrative, if we want to change policies, if we want to change the world, mm. we just start have to telling different stories. Yeah. And food is a brilliant way to tell a story. And Palestinian food is damn good. Right. Which is something you certainly could have started with. Um, we, will, we will interrogate this concept of whether, uh, whether we can actually change the world through stories. Later in the podcast, oh, <laughs> uh, I you know I think both of us have staked our professional lives on. <laughs> I mean, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> on that concept, uh, but it does strike me as um, uh, challenging, and, and you know the the times when that you reach the limits of what that can do uh, feel like uh, very humbling moments. Um, but let's let's not wade in the. The muck just yet. I, tell me, tell me about how you started to, you know, how you started to think about going back to talk about kitchens after having been there as an activist and a human rights campaigner. Um, did you call up the people you knew? Said, "Who's like, what's for dinner? 
Like, how do you how do you start to plan that out and and just see yourself in in Palestine and in, in that role? Yeah, I mean, I take a quite quite a, a relaxed, laissez-faire approach to research. I think, especially when you're trying to organize things in, in, in countries in the Middle East or just in many areas in the global south, you know, you can try and sit there in your kind of Western room with the laptop going, hi, can we meet at two o'clock, you know, in Tuesday in three weeks time and no one's going to get back to you. So part of um, planning the research was just picking a few places to go, finding a photographer who I connected with both in terms of our, our values and our mission. Um, and, you know, nowadays, I mean, the, the big thing that's changed, I think, in the last kind of 10 years is that with social media, it's actually a lot easier just to put out shout outs for where you're going and what you're doing and find people. So it was a real mix. I connected some old friends. A lot of it was just like, OK, we're going to be in a place for a few days. Let's just follow our noses, you know, like uh, meeting one person or going into one shop and telling people what you're doing. You'll obviously get, often get led in a different direction and... Yeah, it was it was all a bit kind of seat of your pants, as we say in the UK. Not not those kind of pants. Anyway, just, the, the linguistic challenges are going to come. Um, so it, it was a mix. And I think that one of the other issues when you're dealing, and I had this with Iran as well, is as a writer, when, when you're going to Iran or if you're going to kind of Israel or, or the West Bank, you, you actually also don't know if you're going to get in. Yeah. yeah. You don't know what's going to happen. Like there's a part of it's like, well, you can only plan so much anyway. And also people there can only plan so much. That's something you really realize because, you know, for a Palestinian, they have no control over their daily life in yeah. terms of their ability to go to school or to go to work one day is completely in the hands of like whatever is happening at a checkpoint. I mean, that was a lesson I learned kind of when I went 10 years ago, but it it just really puts our lives into context as well, because having no control over any bit, any bit of your, your day-to-day routine has a real psychological impact. Um, so it kind of compounds this thing you're talking about the global south which is you know they don't they don't work off of a calendar they want to see you and be with you and feel your presence decide if they want to spend more time with you yeah um which ultimately if you have the time to invest it's a better route i assume it Um, is and also i mean on that point the work that i like to do is you know I'm, i'm not interested in just kind of flying in somewhere and zipping out again you know to to kind of really get to know someone i would often try and meet them beforehand for a tea or, or a drink and just introduce myself and and often a lot of my work involves being invited into people's homes so there just needs to be some kind of mutual trust that happens there and one of the most challenging bits of this research which was very different to the iran book when and i'm sure a lot of writers and journalists find this is um or, or maybe they don't but like uh, maybe i'm more sensitive to it but you know this is a place and a region that is so over researched and overwritten about and nothing changes like mm. it's been going on for 70 years and you really feel that um and this time around it had been five years since i'd been when i first started the research for this book and in, in that time the syria war had had gone off and isis had had kind of appeared so a lot of international attention had kind of moved away from israel and palestine and so i think there was a lot of skepticism a lot of just, you know, I mean, Palestinians are very forthright. So mm. I got, and, and I, I'm taking it as a compliment that they felt that comfortable with me that, you know, sometimes I'll be like, well, hey, we're not here for you to just, we're not clowns in a circus for you to write about and make your name off. And when your book's the number one bestseller, then we're still going to be here. And, you know, that was hard because yeah. it was true, but it was also not true. Um, but uh, and, yeah. and, of course, the question of like, you know, with whom does that 
that context lie, the responsibility for that? I mean, obviously, you are not the one who's been sort of fruitlessly reporting uh, and then forgetting about them in a cyclical nature. But then also you are like, you know, you represent a certain kind of British yeah, totally. <laughs> person as, uh, yeah, uh, coming in to, um, to kind of hear their stories. And, and I guess it gets undifferentiated at the end of the day. And they blame um, the British a lot, like the Balfour Declaration. The British were the ones that gave away Mandate Palestine. So, like, you'll get that almost every day if you're British. Um, <laughs> which is amazing. Uh, and, and a, I mean, on some level, I, can, I could understand as a, a, as a, as a white uh, American guy, there's a, a certain amount of shit that I, you know, need to eat. <laughs> For you know, kind of the history of the country uh, that that I was a part of, whether you know, whether actually or in fact, or in just this kind of like uh, legacy edition. Um, but as a woman of color from the British Empire, like how you know, how do you like how do you metabolize criticisms as the the colonizer? Yeah, I had that. Remember when I went to Senegal for the first time? So that was the first time I'd been to kind of I guess yeah it's it's West Africa but it's kind of Central Africa and and like the little kids that would be running on the street would call me whitey I'd be like I'm not white but then I was like actually in like the global order I am you know like it's more about your kicks than your skin color and it's it's about everything so it's just yeah I think it's it's I think it's interesting yeah sometimes to see how you're perceived by yeah and a friend of mine who uh, uh, went to school with who's who's half black but presents very African American. Gone to Ethiopia. Uh, he's a doctor and he went to Ethiopia practicing medicine. And it was the same thing. Like all the kids were like, "Who is this white person?" <laughs> yeah. And he was like, "If only you knew." Yeah. Like how not white yeah. I am and come across uh, back yeah. home. But um, uh, I do feel I need to say though, despite having just you know spoken about that. Um, the, va- the vast majority yeah. of, of Palestinians, as in Iran, that I, I interviewed and met with for this book were overwhelmingly supportive and excited about the opportunity to present their, their culture through a different prism. And like, how often does that happen? Like very rarely and understandably, like the news isn't, isn't great coming out of that region, but enabling people, you know, especially with Palestine, um, it is a culture that is being eradicated. It is a, a people that are pretty much being eradicated. And therefore, anything that tries to pres- preserve a bit of history, um, yeah, has, has got an important part to play. So, you know, I also had a lot of enthusiasm for the book. I don't want to make out like it was... No, yeah. no, I, I I, can imagine. And this is something we see with our work too is, you know, enthusiasm mixed with like sort of um, a sense of pleasant surprise mm. on some level, right? I mean, people who are not used to be being asked what their um, grandmother's recipes are. Right. <laughs> you know, they're used to being asked uh, much more transactional um, and kind of a harsher uh, line of uh, questioning uh, from a, a congenitally kind of disinterested news media. So uh, so that's, I, I think that is a lot of what, when we've talked about traveling that area, that's a lot of what has come through, that sense of connection. Mm-hmm which is not, you know, not just sort of being rejected. But uh, as a journalist, I'm really always drawn toward the little nodes of conflict. So I'm going to ask you what it's like for you as, as a woman with a 
Muslim last name and a history as an activist uh, to come in through Israel, which is the way I assume you you reach Palestine. Yeah. Um, what is that? Ex- what's that travel experience like? Uh, what you know? What were you thinking beforehand? What were you expecting? What did, what actually happens? Yeah. It's just this nerve-wracking experience where you just don't know what's going to happen. And I think that's the first thing. You know, I think increasingly in the last few years, Israel's become such a tourist destination. And like, I can't open up a travel magazine with Tel Aviv popping as this great foodie city, which it is. Um, but being able to access it, it was really dependent on, on your race. <laughs> and so one thing that happens in the, in the little... At Tel Aviv Airport, they have a little room for all the people that have to be questioned. And it's just basically like the brown person's meeting room. And um, it's just quite striking. You know, I've traveled before into kind of Israel with colleagues, with white colleagues. And it's just, yeah, obviously they go through and I get stopped. I went in on two research trips for the book. And the the first time I just, you know, I had a lot of rookie errors going on. Um, I didn't pack any food and any drink, which was definitely bad because when you're detained for a number of hours and you're tired and hungry, then, you know, that's going to mess with your head even more. But the drinks cart doesn't come through the the brown people no. holding room. No, there's no hot toddies. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was tough. Like uh, especially when I went in the first time round, I was, uh, you know, I was expected to be held held for a few, you know, for a bit of questioning. But uh, uh, there's Mossad agents. Uh, I mean, they're some of the best in the world. I think at, at trying to disorient disorient eight. See, see what they're doing now. <laughs> It's the, 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 what the Germans say, the wall in your mind. Right. It's the Mossad agent oh, really in your mind. Uh, no. So, you know, I was I was taken off and held for about six hours and, and questioned repeatedly over and over again about my, my life, my history, my family, my health, my work, my relationships, you know. And I think one of the things that is really disconcerting when you have these interrogations, and they're very common, you know, in all bits of the world, when you have kind of repressive governments. But, um, you know, the person uh, who's doing the interrogation never... And never, you know, introduces themselves. So you have this very strange relationship. You know, they're they're, they're constantly switching from good cop to bad cop. Um, and of course, we all know that about how intelligence gathering works these days. He had so much information on me, which isn't hard to get. I mean, just Google has it all as well. But yeah, it was it was very intimidating. It was pretty distressing. I mean, at one point, I was just like, if you know everything about me, then you know I'm just here to research a cookbook. So like, either let me go or send me home. Because you know what they can also do there. You know, is they can sometimes ask to like see all your emails your your, your yep. phone your social media stuff and the guy he was just so deadpan he just didn't even stop and he just like looked straight at me and he's like but do you know anyone in hamas and i was like no <laughs> you know but anyway i got through i actually opened my book with that that story yeah uh which isn't again the average thing that you might do in a cookbook by I'm really not, you know, I think that food can be everything, you know, it can be celebratory and it can also be, be I don't know, challenging. And, and, and I guess what I'm interested in my work is telling the whole of the story. So in the book, I kind of really oscillate from, from talking about visiting refugee camps and talking about, you know, white phosphorus being used in Gaza to sharing like the best recipe for, I don't know, masakan, which is this like incredible roasted chicken with red onions and sumac that's like you eat over bread. So the bread soaks all the roasted chicken juices and yeah because life's everything right it's it's not one or the other and I think sometimes with food writing I just find it a bit nauseating where just it just gets all so luscious and like I don't know it just makes you want to vomit like it's just 
it, it, it's important to have that element in it, but it can just be, be a bit facetious as well. Yeah, well, and there's no there's no way of properly relating the weight of a dish, the importance of yeah. the flavors, the the you know why people would care this much about the food that they cook and what they're able to cook without talking about the context for it. And also, essentially, Zaytun is is the story of Palestinians, not of Israelis. It's not Israeli food. It's not Israeli culture. Um, but you do have to kind of reckon, I assume, somehow with the veil that you have to pass through in order to reach Palestine. Yeah. And also, I mean, you know, the construct of Israel and Palestine is a very recent one. You know, for a millennia or, yeah. or more, you know, Jews, Christians and, and Muslims have lived in that region. It's been called different things by different at different times. And I think, yeah, getting too caught up in the borders around that isn't helpful. It's it's part of the problem. Um, so for the research of the book, I traveled through Israel and the West Bank um, because there are Palestinians living throughout. And I, I do make a point kind of early on in the book that, you know, Israeli voices aren't featured in the book, but not, not out of any sense of wanting to exclude the Israeli experience, but just you know, I, I kind of I've worked with Israeli kind of NGOs and peace groups. I've stayed, you know, with Israeli friends in Tel Aviv. Um, I've enjoyed the the food of great Israeli chefs in London and New York. But the book specifically was about a space for Palestinian voices to come out. Um, because especially in the States, I think in the last few years, we've had this huge surge of interest in Israeli food. And, and a lot of it, you know, I think originates from that region that some people <laughs> refer to as Palestine. So it, I think it's just about trying to, yes. to balance it out. This gets to the the hummus wars and the uh, incredible divisions that people can have over what is essentially the same food. It was an amazing story that we had commissioned, and I'm not I'm not sure I've ever heard this talked about publicly. It was uh, a bit of a shanda, as as you would say. Uh, we'd commissioned Shalom Auslander, who's a fantastic, very funny writer, to go to do a piece about the 60th, um, you know, sort of uh, anniversary of the founding of Israel, he came back with this thing that has become, at least in my mind, sort of mythically hilarious, which was an essay about, well, I went and, you know, as a sort of uh, an ambivalent, slightly anti-Zionist, I discovered that the thing that has caused these people to hate each other and to be at war all these years is that they all eat uh, testicle soup. They have a common dish. Palestinians and Israelis are constantly eating sheep balls. And just the gonadal like level in that part of the world is beyond, you know, and it was, I thought it was expertly wrought. I thought it was sort of a little bit of the tone that might have been necessary rather than sort of, um, you know, his tone poems to, you know, the great uh, solemnity of the anniversary and the founding of the state of Israel. Like at some point you just have to just say, maybe you guys should stop eating testicles and <laughs> you'd all get along. Uh, anyhow, it's probably not that much of a surprise. The story got um, axed with prejudice. Uh, <laughs> did not meet the sort of the rigor that uh, people were looking for at time um, to answer this. But I always felt that, that was a very missed opportunity to um, shine a bit of a, a sort of a, a, a a light on the ridiculousness, the smallness of why people are fighting over there. It's probably it's not small? testicle soup. Well, at the end of the day, like you're saying, it's kind of one cuisine. It's a culture that, you know, has very similar roots. Yeah. Borders. I mean, they're the same people. Yeah. 
I mean, probably can't say that in the podcast. But like, <laughs> no, I mean, essentially, yeah, and, you know, and you, um, but I, it's not. Yeah. And I think that's the thing, though. And that is, I think, probably you know, looking to the future in some kind of settlement. The the only way that this this you know, I've, this this conflict is gonna is gonna come to a, a peaceful solution is is kind of the recognition of that. Yeah. Um, you know. Speak to most Palestinians; they'll tell you this, the two-state two-state solution is like a stupid idea to begin with, and it's an even stupider one now. You know, the idea of of, of segregating um, people and communities, of building up false borders—it just doesn't work. And I think to kind of come back a little bit to both like the the detention and then kind of why I wrote the book. I remember sitting there actually in that that long interrogation and thinking, "Man, this this guy like he's probably like the same age as me." Probably, I don't know, got a wife, got kids. Like, you know, he's probably a good guy, but he really hates me right now. And I'm like, why? Why does he hate me so much? Like, I'm just like a woman from like the UK with mixed ethnicity. Like, what? what is it? And I was really trying to think of that. And it, and it really just comes down to fear, right? Like, it comes down to fear. Like, people have been so conditioned and and a lot of people in that region are carrying like trauma like going way back yeah if you think about like intergenerational trauma they say that people now carry that but also what's going on at the moment and you take trauma you mix it with geopolitics and militarism and then media and government brainwashing and you just get communities just totally strangled by fear and that was the only reason this guy had so much I don't know, vehement kind of desire to make me feel shit. You know, I was sitting there crying. Like, I, it's just how, how and, and there was just a huge dehumanization that must have gone in his on in his head, right, in order yeah. for him to do that to me. Um, but yeah, once I, you know, the only way I can make sense of anything that happens there, because it is so sad to hear all these stories when I'm around there, is just to think, you know, when people are living in fear, they just do things that aren't good. And so one of the main things I used to do as an activist, you know, I used to go around like, you know, Jewish societies and universities or whatever. And and you'd realize how fearful people were and just try and say, look, this is really just about equal rights for everyone. Like no one's trying to take anything away from anyone else. Like like this idea of equality yeah. is just what we want. And then you won't need to be fearful and they won't. But I don't know. <sighs> yeah, that's a, that's a way of crashing on a on a rocky shore. <laughs> That's, that's yeah. I don't know. As a uh, as an anti-Zionist American Jew, there's a lot of recognition. At least you know, a lot of that fear is kind of exported um, from here in this incredibly insidious kind of feedback loop. And I found actually, you know, everyday Israelis, and I'm not sure if this is still true. I haven't been there in a while, but you know, their their approach to these questions was ultimately more pragmatic. Um, then, then I felt, you know, the, the American Jewry would represent, I mean, the, the powerful ones, obviously there's a lot of righteous among us and people who care a lot about, uh, human rights, but it's just kind of this amazing feedback loop, uh, that we have over there. So I might be a little, you know, dismissive at the end of the day of the ultimate soft power of storytelling or something. But it is true that if you can actually break through some of those stereotypes, and figure that, you know, not all Israelis are end time apocalyptic, you know, yeah. hyper religious uh, warriors and not all Palestinians are rock throwers. Actually, there's just a bunch of people who are trying to live their best lives, um, but they really somehow don't get counted in the census. Um, so this is what your cookbook does. Tell me how it's... <laughs> 
I know. We're, we're setting out some very big problems. Welcome to my life. It's just like... So you wrote a cookbook. I know, right? To solve... That's right. Conflict in the Middle East. Well, fuck if that isn't more impressive with more integrity and more chance of success than anything that, uh, say, Jared Kushner got up to as the <laughs> Middle East envoy. So I'm 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 fully deputizing you as uh, as the diplomat Thank we you. need. Thank you. Can I be the the R and K representative <laughs> yes, for peace at all those talks? <laughs> We're going to make a little room around the glowing orb uh, <laughs> in Saudi Arabia for the Rosa Don't Kingdoms <laughs> representative. Draw the line. <laughs> So, All right. uh, how would you organize this book? What 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 will people find when they when they open Zaytun? They will find um, a series of recipes that track my journey through Israel and and the West Bank and Gaza, alongside a bunch of travel essays showing the stories of the people I met and cooked with. Um, so that means that when I'm in Akka and Haifa, in kind of the north of Israel, there's lots of incredible kind of seafood recipes, lots of shrimp and incredible like fish dishes smothered in tahini and like flash fried kind of calamari or flash fried squid and um, and then kind of we move over to Nazareth and the Galilee uh, where Jesus turned water into wine mm. and where I visited some incredible Palestinian wineries um, and some of the best baklava shops like I've ever I've ever been to I even tried to really badly make baklava they kind of soon kicked me out of the shop um, but you know the food of the Galilee like, Palestinian food is split into three distinct types so the food of the north um, of Israel is is very vegetable based you know it's kind of lots of I don't know eggplants and peppers and kind of uh, wild asparagus um, so kind of very kind of healthy and vibrant and fresh um, and then as you move down into the West Bank so I traveled and kind of through kind of Janine where I kind of was there for the olive harvest and the word zaytun means olive in Arabic and and olives are the main crop of Palestine and have come you know I think olives everywhere are are a universal symbol of peace, but in Palestine they also represent uh, Palestinians' connection to the land. Hmm. So yeah, I'm just going to give you a flash tour, and then we can go. Yeah, there. I'm, yeah, and I'm then we're here for this. It's yeah, also... so I visited like uh, Zata f- like farms with kind of like women's cooperatives in the village of Burkin, who are just kind of kind of yeah, the, you know, there's a big push nowadays well, nowadays there's a big push in recent years um to kind of get produce out of the west bank so there's an increasing number of kind of fair trade cooperatives many of them kind of women run so i went and hand rolled some maftool which uh is this kind of giant kind of i guess kind of something like a couscous it's a bit more like a pasta but it doesn't mm. lose its lose its shape when it's cooked like it stays quite firm then through into Ramallah which is I guess like the capital of the West Bank it's kind of a bit of a I don't know I've not a lot of time for Ramallah it's kind of where all journalists and NGO types go and it's just I mean whatever you can go and get a good pizza or or something but it's just a bit you it's know the anyone center who's, of the any, conflict yeah, story exactly. yeah yeah it's just like you know those places with NGOs and journalists and they're just like Ugh. <laughs> they're um, great people one-on-one yeah, yeah. you don't want to be in a gaggle of them There's no. something something is wrong about that and then Jerusalem which is like one of the most intense and strange places on earth uh and there it was all about um you know obviously dipping into some of the classics the falafels the hummus the kebabs 
and the Fatouches. Um, and then through into Bethlehem, which is just a beautiful place. Like I really hmm. love Bethlehem. And and the you know You're pronouncing some, it Bethlehem is that. Is that an actual Palestinian pronunciation or... Bethlehem. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know. Here, we, we have a lot of Bethlehems in the, in uh, the United States. Uh, Pennsylvania's got a great Bethlehem. Oh. I don't know. How's the hummus? Different, uh, <laughs> the hummus in Bethlehem is probably about as good as the croissants in Paris, Texas. Right. Um, gonna... Yeah. <laughs> First-rate audio entertainment here. That is uh, a floral three fingers of Old Monk going That's into right. the last of the hot toddy. Uh, yeah, and in, in just outside of Bethlehem in the, vis- vis- uh, in the um, village of Tiber, I visited the Middle East's first microbrewery, which is just like incredible. They have this great selection of kind of pale ales, dark ales, white beers. They have an Oktoberfest every <laughs> September, confusingly. Um, and, uh, well, yeah. yeah, October comes early in the Middle East. Uh, this is a beer that's actually distributed internationally. You can find it in yeah, the UK. Yeah, it's in Boston. It's in Boston. That's the only place in the US right now that you can get it. But you can get it in the UK in quite a few places across Europe. Maybe by the time my book's out, they'll bring it here. But yeah, so the, you know, the book tells the stories of all of these places and also Gaza, um, which I couldn't travel to um, because it's blockaded and has been for 11 years and nothing can get in or out. But I did those interviews with either diaspora, Gazans in the diaspora or over Skype. Um, I feel and- like I've not really spoken about the food. No, I've, I, you had me at wild asparagus right. in the north and right. um, fish and tahini on the coast. I mean, my visceral reaction to uh, having gone to Israel, which I did for a cousin's wedding with the, the pothead Hasids up in Svat, which was a ton of fun at the end of the day, but also uh, sort of terrifying interrogation, which is why I'm, um, <laughs> why I just couldn't even imagine what it'd be like for. Uh, and what happened to you? Uh, just the same. I mean, it's the same thing. Yeah. It's just this, this, you know, this very dead-eyed um, <laughs> kind of. And I, I mean, listen, I've been detained and 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 I've been in repressive regimes and and all of this. It's not like um, it's it's it, like you said. It's not unique to them, but they're they have a unique talent for it. And you know, I think just just the idea that me as a half Jew from America, the major sponsor of whatever the fuck it is that they're doing over there. Like that to me struck me as enlightening. Like what must this process be for people who are not, you know, exactly representing the regime uh, in the way that I, I, I should have been on some level. But the experience of kind of getting through that and, and seeing what it is to, to be in that part of the world, the incredible diversity over this very small geographic area is something that just, yeah, just blows my mind. I mean, like Galilee is something very, very distinct from, um, you know, from the coast, from the Dead Sea, from Jerusalem. These things are all about 20 minutes away by car. (laughs) You know, not only is the entire Bible something that's written, you know, in what appears to be about half the size of Queens, you know, and that to me was like one of the most incredible um, kind of takeaways uh, from this. And even when my Jewish side of the family came over uh, from Europe before the war, they took the name Golan. They're very into Golan Heights. So, you know, the Golan family was the was my father's family. And, and just going and seeing like, oh, well, there are 
Golan Heights over there, which of course are these mythically um, kind of martial uh, mountains at this point, but also a stone's throw from the rest of, uh, from Galilee and the rest of Israel. I just am, it is kind of amazing the diversity that you can have, which I guess is a function of the ancientness. I mean, it's also yeah. geographical in a sense, but I would believe that there would be 20 Palestinian cuisines. Yeah. Well, there's three distinct ones, but I, I always say, and then this is a big, actually, a lot of the recipes of the book, in the book um, are very much about that. They're very seasonal. They're very, they're often very local. You know, I, I always say to people after my first time of going to the region, it reminded me of what it was like, say, in Italy, where like you go from one town to a next and mm. they're like, no, this is how we yeah. make this dish. <laughs> um, because, you know, for example, in Gaza, the food, like the holy trinity of Gazan cuisine is like dill, chili and garlic, which... In, are used in like copious amounts so it's like really spicy it's really fragrant um, and you know they use a lot more sour kind of lots of pomegranate lasses lots of sour plums lots of limes you know, even the tahini there is roasted so they have kind of roasted tahini mm. as one of my friends from Gaza said like the food here even the food here is more intense than the rest of of, 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 of Palestine but, you know, in the West Bank, you have, you know, it's, you know, because of the desert, you have less kind of green vegetables or, or vegetables in general. And the food's a lot more meat and bread based. Um, so that means kind of rich stews, kind of, you know, lamb cooked in this incredible fermented yogurt sauce, mansaf, which is one of my favorite dishes. It's a really famous Bedouin dish. Uh, roast chickens stuffed with pine nuts and rice and raisins. So mm. it's just, you know, a lot more hearty. How did you find, speaking of Bedouin, so there's, there are distinct cultures in there as well. Drew's culture is, you know, has been coexisting for those millennia you're talking about. Were you able to start to see enough of the cuisine to kind of realize where these different strains came in and, and how it's not, you know, there's not sort of a pure, or, or maybe there is. I mean, you tell me, like, a, a pure Palestinian cuisine versus a hybrid one. Well, now we're going into a whole other like topic around what is authenticity in, mm. in cuisine, but we won't kind of go there. I mean, yeah, I did. And, you know, there's lo lots of different types of Palestinians. I mean, one of the main things I always tell people, like as a starter, that 30% of Palestinians are Christian. So a lot of people just assume this is some kind of, you know, hugely Muslim or Islamic driven kind of society, but it isn't. Um, and then, as you, as you said, you know, the Armenian um community class themselves as Palestinian and they're also Christian and the Armenian cuisine is very distinctive and I had this great day cooking with the chef Johnny Gorek in the Legacy uh, Hotel in Nazareth. He was kind of Palestinian, Armenian Palestinian mm. trained in France as a chef then came back and is now kind of bringing Western cooking techniques to traditional, I just did the inverted commas thing, Palestinian food but also kind of trying to use ingredients that they grow on the land such as wild capers in dishes and, and you have all these discussions in Palestine because um, because of all the issues around identity and borders and nationality and nationalism everyone's trying to grasp onto these things through food but as one of one of my interviewees said you know he was just like you know my Palestinian identity isn't something that I kind of you know dig up from the ground that's been there it's something that I'm inventing every day and that mm. I'm living every day and we live in a modern world and and the influences of all the different people that have ruled over ancient Palestine from the Greeks to the Romans to the Persians to you know the British um, you know like uh, in the you know, kind of Jewish tradition Islamic tradition Christian tradition it's a real mix the Ottomans the Ottomans I think had the biggest influence uh, and you see that in architecture as well as food so Again, you know, when we're talking about what is the Palestinian kitchen, you know, I, I, 
I mean, what is it? Uh, it? It's a medley. It's a mix of everything. And if only perhaps we could get to a point in the world where we we saw this mix and medley of everything as being something that we celebrate as opposed to something that we try and, I don't know, protect, I think. I think or, yeah, us. reduce to reduce, like an yeah. immutable... This is mine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I, I was thinking about this morning. I, I, for some reason, I'm not sure if there's some sort of Israeli holiday, but... There's a woman walking around today with an Israeli flag in the Upper West Side. And, of course, we're, you know, to date the podcast, we're also a week after Israel opened fire on protests in the Gazan border and murdered a photojournalist. And, like, and murdered another one this week as well. And they did. So, yeah. I, I mean, it's like, you know, I, I want to just run after this woman shouting, you know, free Gaza or something. I mean, who the mm-hmm. fuck knows how to, how to even... Uh, handle feelings about this kind of conflict i guess the question for you would be is what you know what do you think people should do what would you like to see them do maybe zaytun is a catalyst for something um how do you how do you start to envision something kinder (laughs) yeah well i'm gonna answer that in two ways first of all i think that the situation in Gaza is one that's pretty much fallen off the map, but that's a, that's a real tragedy. And I think history is going to look back and really judge us all for have living lived through this time where two million people are being held in an open air prison for eleven years in an area that's um, twenty five miles long and five miles wide. Oof. Um, that they can't leave. And uh, some of my most moving interviews were were about Gaza, actually. Um, and uplifting ones as well, but you know, one of the one of the people I interviewed was just giving, you know, we're just having a real laugh, like talking about like food, and he's and talking me through this recipe, and then all of a sudden he's just like, ah, oh, but you know, the thing is, you know, for us eating even eating vegetables or even like talking about food that we like can you know be quite frightening, and I was like, why? And he's like, well. Because Israel used white phosphorus uh, against us um, a few years ago, and the remnants of that are in the ground, and there's been a huge cancer spike, you know. And he's like, so, you know, when I pull carrots out from my garden and I cook with them, something that universally around the world, it's like, hey, I'm just growing my own carrots and getting them from the ground, you know. He's just like, well, you just don't know, is that carrot going to give you cancer? And yeah, so so what do you do with it? And I think that's one of the issues that stops a lot of people engaging on the issue of Israel and Palestine because it almost seems so overwhelmingly awful. It's yeah. like, what can you do? But actually, Palestinian civil society for the last 10 years has been really clear. And I think that in the same way that at different points in history, we've supported, as in we, um, people in the world have supported uh, social movements in places like you know, South Africa or, um, you know, it's quite important to listen what, to what kind of the people who are being oppressed are asking for. And um, I think in terms of political action, it's really important to hold the institutions that are causing these oppressive acts to account. So that means in terms of our governments, um, in the UK, we have huge campaigns to stop selling arms to kind of Israel, which the UK does. We have a huge campaign in supermarkets that um, actually we've had quite a lot of victories on. And I know Amnesty are doing a lot of work on it at the moment to stop British supermarkets selling goods that are sold in settlements Mm -hmm. because these are legal settlements in the West Bank, you know, they're now becoming economic entities, which is 
you know, a lot of the herbs or vegetables that are sold in, in Western supermarkets are coming from these places. So that's something that there's been a lot of um, yeah. actually European success on and the European like Union is even kind of getting behind it. So it's really about kind of targeting in a very grassroots way the infrastructure of the occupation. And alongside that, I think that anywhere where I can, I try and just talk about... Palestinians I've met and I really encourage everyone to go I know I've told a few stories that might make you think you know maybe I shouldn't go but um, one of the main problems I think we have is the fact that uh, the whole area is demonized to an extent that people don't know what's happening and yeah do you know what I'm waffling I'm gonna stop no I mean I, I think the the idea of visiting yeah. which is of course you know something that we fully support as a kind of un, unspoken power yeah you know, why aren't more people visiting Tunisia when like when they really need it and they are trying to do something yeah. unique and unheard of uh, after the Arab Spring? Why don't people go and spend money in the West Bank yeah. when they can get there? Yeah. Um, the, uh, the British artist, graffiti artist Banksy, he's just opened up a hotel in Bethlehem. And obviously Bethlehem is really famous because it's surrounded by the wall, which is yep. this kind of huge kind of concrete fence. And Banksy's done a lot of graffiti there over the years to try and kind of make it more of a tourist site to encourage people to go because because I guess people are drawn to that. But um, yeah, if you, if you ever need a place to stay, I recommend his hotel. But he's still anonymous. <laughs> he is. So how do you I imagine like faulty towers? But, I mean, I don't you know. think he's on the front desk. <laughs> <laughs> He's the bellman. You'll yeah. never, you never know. You'll never know. Uh, so Faulty Towers. That's a good reference um, for an American audience. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Chew on some uh, old British comedy. Manuel is going to turn out to have been Banksy all along. Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting though. And I think one of the ways that you can, if you really want to see where your mental energy and perhaps your dollars uh, or pounds should go to think about think about what happens when you know some of these guys run these kind of like after Aaliyah tours to the West Bank, you know where they're taking people who've done Aaliyah who are you know who were basically flown over for free by the Israeli government, which is something they do for you know uh, what they would hope would be aspiring Zionists from anywhere in the world. There have been a few leftists who have then created this like okay that was fun like you got a free plane ticket and you got to see the Israeli side like come to the West Bank. Yeah. It's not going to be heavy. We're just going to have. Yeah. We're going to have some beers. We're going to eat some food. We're going to have a good time. And you're going to see them as people. And the Israeli government hates it. Yeah. And they get really pissed yeah. off. And that's when you know, you're like, oh, this yeah. is pretty interesting. Like, maybe there's something to this. And it is that simple act, right? It's just it's just yeah. travel. You, yeah. You're just going to do the shit that all of us do when we travel, which is like, try to have a nice meal, see the sun go down, uh, meet some people. Exactly. And, you know, there's lots of great organizations that do that. Uh, the Alternative Information Center, which is this joint Israeli-Palestinian kind of journalist collective. Um, there's the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions, you know, and they do great work. I've gone on tours with them because they can get you into the settlements because they're Israeli and they're just crazy places to visit, like, in the, <laughs> these, yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, there's, there's visiting. Um, but, you know, in, Israel's primarily a country that, is is making a lot of its it, it's like i think the fourth or the fifth and um, biggest arms dealer to the world like it's military it is like it just embodies the military industrial complex mm. and i think certainly um in terms of campaigning that's always been my my focus because you know i know activists in india are kind of campaigning against these big israel india arms deal because you know these weapons often that israel's testing are being kind of 
or they've been tested out on Palestinians and are sold to the world. So mm. I think there's a huge responsibility for all of us in countries that do business with any repressive regime, actually. You know, I feel very similar about Saudi Arabia and the fact that like we're giving them all these weapons that they're using to just massacre people in Yemen. Like, I don't want to single Israel out for, for shitty behavior. There's a lot of it all over that region. Um, but as, as ever, I just feel that until we start as a society being able to deal with how we reckon with with the military and kind of the arms the arms companies we're really going to struggle to have peace in the middle east because there's so many vested interests that are continuing a drive to war across the region um this is the useful side of your hippiness cuz you're absolutely right like at the end of the day like you you do have to beat your weapons into plowshares and otherwise you know where's where's the impetus like where does it really hurt people to continue to um, and, and hate, you know, of course, which is perhaps, uh, you know, maybe one reason why I didn't run after this woman shouting free Gaza this morning in my neighborhood, but, you know, sort of, uh, hate confrontation conflict is, is, uh, does not feel like the, you know, the, the, the path forward. Um, they have a few more levels of kind of, um, crawling into their shell, uh, <laughs> they could do. Uh, if if sort of uh, attacked and antagonized uh, on a personal level, but there's got to be something, and and probably starting with the money, yeah. it's not a terrible way to go. Um, how about <laughs> those olives? How about those olives? Palestinian olive oil. Let me tell you, none of this fake shit. None of this. None like, of this fake. You, know, you ever had it? Uh, I. I mean, I believe I must have. I've been to the West Bank. Okay. I imagine it must have been in there. I'm not sure that I've I had like a bottle that, you know. I'll bring you back a bottle next time I come through. Um, yeah, Palestinian olive oil is incredible. It's very peppery. Mm. So it's got, you know, I think for people who've not had it, maybe the the most the thing I'd compare it to is probably Greek olive oil. It's got that bitterness to it, yeah. very pungent. Um, but what you'll see in a Palestinian's cupboard when they open it, they'll have a selection of different olive oils um, because without wishing to get too technical, you shouldn't be cooking with extra virgin olive oil. You want to be cooking with a lighter one for all kinds of chemical and taste reasons. Um, but the olive harvest takes place in October and November. And every Palestinian, everyone, has... has has an olive tree, as all like their families will have kind of olive trees, huh. and these and during the olive harvest every Friday, which is the day off, um, they will kind of go out with families, and it's just like the huge kind of family celebration of everyone going off to the fields, you know, picking olives, um, you know, maybe someone's grandmother coming out with thick uh, wedges of deep fried kind of cauliflower or eggplant to dip in tahini and put into little bread kind of wraps to have under the olive trees while you're harvesting the fruit um and it's something really special and so I kind of went I was really kind of fortunate to be able to visit the harvest while it was taking place and it was I'll tell you what um back to being a hippie uh it was just such a peaceful place like you're in this this country that's so intense anyway and you're listening to all these stories that are so traumatic and then just to get out into the fields and I remember as I was walking up to, to kind of the first group of people I saw who were harvesting I could just hear which is like the pitter patter of olives just falling huh. and then people would just get a climb up onto ladders with a rake like a garden rake and just be kind of raking through the trees and then 
it was really nice. So I just kind of sat there, had a coffee, talked to people a bit. It was really nice. Um, there's a meditative quality to any harvesting, as, as anyone who's been around farm produce will tell you. Um, and I'm right down with it. And just, just on that point, I mean, I genuinely believe, I feel quite passionately about this. It's not just because of the hot toddies. Um, I genuinely believe that pretty much most of the world's problems come from the act of dehumanizing another person. And if all this book can do is in some small way offer a human connection to a place or a people that's more commonly associated with terror, then I'll be happy. Boom. We'll always got to have the last word. <laughs> I was going to make a terroir joke, but we'll be so much better off just leaving it to you. Thank you, Yasmin. Thank you. The Trip is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg, produced by Roads and Kingdoms. Kathy Mukanyadze is our editor and more my co-pilot than Jesus ever was. Emily Marinoff is our producer. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Music by Dan the Automator with a special assist from Delore, who's been making our excellent ad music over the past few episodes and in this one, giving capitalism that emo soundtrack I always wanted for it. Thank you, Delore. A reading recommendation for this week. Tomorrow, February 12th, is the launch date of Adam Higginbotham's outstanding book, Midnight in Chernobyl. Adam labored on this book for a couple years in our office in Brooklyn, and though I will not miss the stacks of arcane Soviet committee reports, I'm just astonished at how gripping a story he was able to rescue from those dusty piles. It reads like a thriller, but it is very real, and could be prologue for more nuclear disasters in our time. Midnight in Chernobyl. Read it. Next week on the trip. It's Valentine's Day, people, so I'm going to be in Tokyo in a love hotel. With a woman who is not my wife, journalist Toko Sekiguchi is talking about porn, romance, and Japan's massive infidelity industry. It's all quite chaste, actually. We should say this, there will be no sex in this episode. <laughs> Toko and I are buddies. I'm, I'm uh, still... Uh, say so. We'll meet you there. <laughs>